When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 147 on Missile Opinions, brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, and today's show is a little different. With no games to worry about and transfer news still quiet as of today, and I say as of today, this is Tuesday, I decided to change things up a bit. For today's show, we're going to be talking about something important to Barcelona and Catalan culture, and that is food. So not much football talk, but we are talking about food aplenty today with a little bit of football talk at the end. And to help me do this, I'm joined by the author of Catalan Food, Culture and Flavors from the Mediterranean, and a talented chef and restaurant owner, Chef Daniel Olivea. How are you today, Chef? Very, very well, sir. Thanks for asking. Just getting the day started here in Austin. So again, you are based in Austin. And so the first things first that we want to ask, I'd love to hear about your journey from Barcelona to the U.S., and then how you got into the restaurant business. Yes, sir. That seems like a long time ago. Now, but um, uh, I was born in Vilafranca uh, del Penedès. It's a city now. It was not as big when I was a little kid. Um, in the outskirts of Barcelona, about uh, 30 miles south of Barcelona, in the wine, and the, the capital of the wine region called Penedès. Um, I was a very um, curious little boy always. My parents uh, were able to take us to France and to Germany and to travel through Europe. So the traveling bug has always been, been on me about learning about other cultures and seeing other parts of the world. So 
being a little boy under uh, the beginning of the democracy in Spain, the end of the Franco's, uh, Franco's years. I was uh, brought up in a society that I thought it was a little backwards, it was a little conservative, it was not much um, of a of a bright light society. I, I, I grew up in a very gray space somehow as a kid. So when I was um, a little kid, I, I joined like most of us, um, without knowing what we were doing, um, political organizations that at the time they were illegal. Um, my parents got a little worried about that, and uh, since I was putting more time about fighting for for freedom than um, studying, they decided to send me to Chicago where my mother had a brother that uh, owned a restaurant there to see if he could train me up and made me study. So that worked, luckily. So in September 1979, I was just 18 years old, they decided to ship me uh, from Villafranca to Chicago. When I got there, um, I, always, I had always cooked at home. I had always had a lot of curiosity for food. But I never thought about becoming a chef because um, it was not a very glamorous job. And I, I remember as a kid not even meeting the chef whenever we went out for dinner. Rather, you always met the maitre d' or the, or the guy that was in charge of the dining room. You never w would even hear about the chef nor expect the chef to create any, any type of, um, of meal that was worth more than my mother could cook at home. So I moved to the United States. Um, with the desire to become a professional musician, a professional jazz player. I, I, that's what I was doing already in Spain, studying music. I joined the American Conservatory of Music in Chicago. But at the same time, I was uh, working in my uncle's restaurant. I was working in a lot of restaurants. And by the time I was 23, 24, I could see that I was going to be a better cook than a better musician. And by that time, um, there was no organic farm-to-table food. There was no local ingredients. Everything was based on, on, on knowledge and, and ethnicity a little bit. But I started hearing through the grapevine that San Francisco had places like Chepanese, like Zuni, that they were farm-to-table oriented. They were following the seasons. So my curiosity, and plus the fact that I've always didn't like the, the cold winters in Chicago, and I was was curious about California, <laughs> made me move to San Francisco. And that's luckily where I landed in 86, I think 1986, with the idea to pursue a career um, as a chef, perhaps, and maybe as a musician. I, I, I didn't have everything clear. And luckily, I was uh, already taught how to work in any aspect in the restaurant. My uncle had an amazing background, very traditional background in high-end French restaurants. So he taught us, or he made, made us work at his place. So we did table car service and double tablecloth. I mean, the old traditional um, Caesar salad on the side of the table, steak tartare on the side of the table, deboning the fish, opening um, the bottles, decanting them, the, the old bottles of wine. So I had a lot of um, experience, so I could defend properly any position in the restaurant, from bartender to, to waiter to, to cook. But when I, when I went to San Francisco, I found um, Zuni Cafe, which uh, at the time it was um, one of the most unique places I thought because the way they ran it, the way it was such a farm-to-table approach, good double, good burning oven, good burning grill. So that's where I did a lot of my apprenticeship. I was able in November of 1999 
to open after many different job positions and working many different chefs. I was able to open B44 Catalan Bistro in the financial district in San Francisco with some investors, not having a lot of knowledge of finances, but you know, asking questions here and there, we were able to, to pull it. B44 became perhaps one of the first Catalan themed restaurants in the United States. Um, my idea there was to stay a little away from tapas, toro, sangria, and flamenco. I didn't want to have known that I, I don't like these things, but I wanted to identify myself as a Mediterranean Catalan restaurant. And it worked. It worked very well. I, I got a lot of awards. Nobody was aware that we could do different rice dishes, rabbit dishes, monkfish dishes in Catalonia with great olive oil, with great vegetables. So being San Francisco such a foodie city, even then, I was able to create a nest for my style of food, um, which, as I said, it, it gave me a lot of credibility, and it got me on the map as a professional chef without me really searching that. All I wanted is to make a living, get married, uh, have family, little kids, and all I wanted is to get ahead. I was fortunate enough, too, that I grew up in the business in the United States as chefs became trendy, as restaurant business became trendy. So from one day to the other, I was a guy that wanted to be a chef. Then I went to a guy that was talked about in newspapers and TV programs and magazines and I could not make sense out of it because <laughs> I never thought that food was going to become so popular. But I rode the wave. I rode the wave the best, the best way I could. And before it became very successful, we opened then um, a place in Oakland called Barlata, a, a little tapas bar. People got more and more familiar with, um, with Spanish food. It seemed at the beginning that Spanish food had no room, that everything was French or Italian. Yeah. As far as European food, then there was Mexican, of course, and Japanese and Thai and all these Asian cuisines. But little by little, Spanish food started becoming respected. Luckily, we had the big boom of Ferran Adria becoming the best chef in the world with his El Bulli restaurant. Not that I do food of El Bulli, rather I do more traditional food, but uh, I was one of the people in the United States that reaped the benefits of that because of, all of a sudden... Spain had a gastronomy of its own, um, which didn't exist until then. Yeah. So we opened, we opened Barlata, um, Oakland in 2008, and or 2007 and 2008, the big recession hit California. Um, I was already coming to to Texas to work for um, a supermarket called Central Market, which there is about 12 stores in the United States, in, in the whole state of Texas. I would come once or twice to teach for them, and in the middle of the biggest recession, we lost the value of our home, our business in Oakland was suffering, the business in San Francisco was suffering, my wife lost her job, and we decided to move to Austin, because we thought it was a brighter future for us and the family. Came here, um, spent two or three years commuting from San Francisco to Austin, because like most of the projects, you require a lot of money to open a business. Took a while to find the finances and to find the space, and then um, probably around 2013, 2012, we were able to open Barlata Austin, and that's how where, where we are right now. Um, 
my food now we do tapas i think it's a better time to do tapas now than mm -hmm. in 1999 because people understand more the way of sharing food but if my food now is based in tapas it's still based flavors in the mediterranean flavors which is my style of cooking yeah well and you say that you know tapas and paella are dishes that i think most people recognize that exist in other uh, other cuisine but what do you think sets apart the Catalan versions of these dishes? The, the, the Catalan, you know, I defend uh, a lot of my cuisine as based uh, as one of the most influential or the most authentic Mediterranean styles of cooking. Mediterranean diet, uh, it's been spoke a lot about it lately as being the diet of the longevity. And it's basically a diet based a lot with extra virgin olive oil being one of the main key ingredients of it. Mm. A lot of vegetables, nuts, grain, uh, seafood, obviously, and small, and when you talk about protein or, or, or animals, we, we use a lot of small game, rabbits, and so on. So I think that what differentiates, particularly at least for me, it's the fact that we use a lot of, of these ingredients in Catalan cuisine. Paella is a dish that is done throughout Spain, or arroz, the, the rice dishes rather than paella, because every rice dish is not only a paella, there is uh, arroces, uh, there is fideos, there is paellas. But I believe that those ingredients that I mentioned before, the way we roast the vegetables, the way we stew them, they, they take apart a little bit from what Spanish cuisine is. I mean, mm -hmm. Spain is a place that even if it's a small country the size of Texas, food is very predominant there, even if it didn't become popular outside of Spain. I think in Spain, not only Catalonia, but all over Spain, we go an extra mile to feed ourselves properly. You can see in Catalonia and Barcelona, people live in very small apartment buildings rather than a house. They, they drive a small car or no car at all. They don't travel too far away. They stay very local when they go on holidays. The majority I'm talking. But when it comes down to it, they make the biggest effort financially that anybody can imagine going out of your way to get the best mushrooms, going out of your way to get the best shrimp and small seafood, and, and so on, so on. So um, I, I value that a lot, you know, but mm -hmm. it's, it, is, it is hard to say what exactly is the difference between Catalan food and Spanish food, but I think I would base it more of a, a proximity of the ocean. We are also very influenced by friends, being a border with friends, so that you find seldom um, sauces or, or, or styles of cooking that they're related to friends and we also have incorporated a lot through the years a lot of things from Italy mm -hmm. um, if you look at the geogra geographic, geographically sorry, how the Mediterranean is set up Barcelona is the biggest seaport of the Mediterranean it has been like that for, for years or centuries so it has always been a place of merchandising and trading a lot of it's just coming and going, spices coming, spices leaving. And so I think that differentiates a lot Catalan food from the rest of Spain, that influences from these countries that they're so close to us. Yeah, I mean, I really like that uh, the way you explained how basically uh, one of the foundations of obviously of Cat uh, Catalan cuisine is the Mediterranean, and that obviously influences so much of, of the cuisine. And so with all that said, you also discussed about uh, tracking down mushrooms and different vegetables. And 
Do you think when making Catalan dishes at home, you know, for people not just in restaurant, but when people try to make these dishes at home, do you think the acquisition of different ingredients is the hardest part? Or do you think it, it is actually the methodology when you're, you know, creating these recipes? Exactly. I think the, the ingredients, you know, I don't believe that, you know, everybody tells me, or Spaniards or Catalans, when I meet them in the U.S., oh, I cannot find this, I cannot find that particular ingredient. I think the most important is to build the base of the dish with authenticity and with good flavor. If you build a base of a dish with a good sofrito, a good stewed vegetables, a good broth, yes, then I think it's better to use your local uh, protein that you can find around yourself. So uh, I think uh, most important for me is to, is to interpret flavor more than interpret ingredients. You're answering kind of my next question. When attempting to make these dishes at home, where do you tell most people to start? And obviously, other than recipes from your book, but uh, it, are there more simple dishes that you would direct people to try to, you know, get their feet wet in when making at home? Of course. Um, I mean, I think the most important thing to cook at home properly, first of all, is to acquire a habit of going shopping periodically. You know, if you if you don't cook at home, you know, you go once, twice a, a month, fill up the freezer. But if you're a person that likes to cook often at home, most important is to um, educate yourself to, to know the seasons, to understand the seasons, and to understand that you got to go shopping often. In Catalonia, we go shopping every single day, every mm. single day. You might not buy onions every single day, but you don't get five kilos of onions. You get... 8, 10, 12 onions, and then you go back and get some more. But everything that's protein-oriented, you buy that daily. You don't get fish today to eat it in two or three days. You go in the morning to the fish market to eat fish that day. You go to the butchery to eat meat that day. So that, I think, it's the first key important of a, a home cook. It's to know how to shop properly and to make an effort to do that. Second thing I believe it's very important is to build a great pantry in your home that you, you, you have all your spices and all your olive oils and vinegars, nuts and everything that you need at any given moment. And then we, we're very blessed in the United States because people here are, or at least myself as a chef, I see that Americans have a very open-minded palate, which is hard to, to find that in Europe. In, in, in Catalonia, when you talk about Moroccan food, it seems like if it's from another planet. <laughs> when people talk about Greek food, nobody is interested in that. They are interested in the region and regional things, which it's great. But um, as I say, I think one of the biggest assets of, of, of my customers or Americans here is that they discover food, good food, 20 years ago maybe. I don't know exactly how many years ago, but it's, it's a recent trend. And it's amazing how, how fast it took off. Um, I've been here for 40 years in the United States, and when I rewind my memory... I remember people coming to my uncle's restaurant in 1980 and ordering trout with coffee. And I thought, how can people eat trout with coffee? <laughs> so that, that's four yeah. years ago, and it's, America has taken big, big, giant steps. So, um, so as I say, you know, I think it's important going shopping. I think it's important um, to build yourself a, a, a good pantry and then to try the dishes not only once, twice, as often as you can to perfection them and then be patient. You know, food, especially Catalan food, it's based a lot in, in stewing, in slow cooking, and waiting your time. You know, you cannot make a good paella, a good rice dish in, 
in, in 10 minutes, you know, you need hours to do that, and and you need the the, the patience, and you know what I mean, and, and building mm -hmm. all that steps I told you before, the shopping, the pantry, and then just trying it, trying it, and, and, and making sure, as I say, that, that the basis of the sofrito, the basis of the, of, of the broth, the basis of, of that you build, that the, there's one thing that we, we do a lot in Catalonia, it's a lot of dishes, but with a picada. Picada is basically a pounded combination of, of things that you put in a mortar, you get a wooden handle, and you pound them to yeah. the, the point you disintegrate them. There is picadas with almonds, with pine nuts, with chocolate, with a little liver of the rabbit. There's picadas with ñora peppers. There's many types of picadas. And that's one of the particular things, and I talk about that on my book, how important it is to, to finish always with a picada, which is going to give you flavor and it's going to give you texture at the same time. Now, my last cuisine question for you here is a little bit of a personal one. We did talk before about the influence of, of France or French cooking and Italian cooking, obviously, also sitting on the Mediterranean and how that has impacted uh, Catalan cuisine. But I do love cheese. And so my question, I guess my final question about the cuisine is where do you think cheese and, and something that is so big on the palate, how does that influence or how does that fit, I should say, into Catalan cuisine? I mean, we're, we're next to the Pyrenees. We're right there and we have a lot of goats. I mean, cheese, it's, it's, it's all over. Um, um, for us, majority of the cheese, we eat it as is with a little piece of bread um, at the beginning of the meal or at the end of the meal. But as I say, geographically, where we're located, you can see that there's got to be cheese in Catalonia because we sit in the foothills of the Pyrenees. So, um, I don't know if I'm asking that your question, but um, no, certainly we, we we grew up very um, cheese oriented, and you know when we talk about about cheese as an example, one of the things that, and that's my opinion, I'm, I'm a believer that the fact that Spain did wasn't didn't participate in the first or second world war it allowed us to maybe become a little isolated from Europe, but also it allowed us to keep tradition much more than other countries that they were overdeveloped quick to, to be able to um, restore the foundation of the country that was destroyed to do the worst. So Spain being such a off-the-beat path country for many years, I think it was able, or Catalonia, to, to retain the tradition a lot. So we, we, we were never manufacturing big amounts of anything. Mm -hmm. So everything, especially cheese, when I think about cheese, you still go to places and that the, you know, every little town in the Pyrenees has their own style of cheese. And that, I think it was, uh, before it was commercialized, the cheese, it was a way of people to self-feeding themselves. Right. So um, I think the quality, quality is great, great, and, and, and the ab abundance and, 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 and the reception of people is great for cheese. Yeah, that's a terrific answer, too, uh, just about how different cuisine in Spain has been so separate, and the tradition and the traditional food that is made has stayed, for all the reasons you mentioned, for so many, so many years and decades. I, I know I've read about uh, Basque cuisine, uh, really trying to stick with the pillars that have been with Basque cuisine for 
hundreds and and I, I do mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we did already talk about the foundation of how fishing and obviously the Mediterranean Sea have been at the epicenter of both those styles of cuisine. And now to pivot, we're going to shift. This is a podcast about FC Barcelona. And Chef, obviously, I brought you on because you're also an FC Barcelona fan. I, I guess we'll start with how long have you been a fan? And uh, are there any players that in the past have, have stuck out to you and that uh, obviously when, when you were younger and around Barcelona going to the stadium, uh, who stuck out, uh, stuck out in your mind? Well, uh, Johan Cruyff. Johan Cruyff was the, 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 I think, I mean, we talk a lot about Messi right now and Messi yeah. is an amazing player, but I think that when Johan Cruyff um, came in 1974, 75, he... He was amazing. Yes, obviously, um, 99% of us Catalan kids grew up liking Barca. It, it transcended more than a soccer team. It, it was a way. Going to the Barca setting was the only place you could really speak Catalan. It was the only place that you could scream in Catalan without getting, uh, you know, harassed by the police. It was the only place you could go for years to to to. As I said, to speak your language, so it became it became more than a soccer team, Barca. It became a place for Catalans to believe that someday we could get out of the Franco's oppression. So there is a sentiment we say in Catalan, Barca, or Barca is more than a club. Barca is more than a club. Because um, even if you're not crazy, I grew up playing basketball. I was a cyclist and a basketball player. Um, I tried soccer as a kid. I think I was a better basketball player, so I hmm. think I basketball, but we all love Barca. Um, beyond just being a team of um, soccer players, I think it's more its more uh, something that you have engraved inside you that represents your culture. Um, and as I say, for me, the most, the player I have enjoyed the most, the most by far was Jacob Cruyff as a player, as a coach, as a, as a person that that changed the, the, the face of Barca. Without him, I don't think that Barca would have been what it is right now because he's the guy that he created the tiki-taka, which is that I pass it to you, you pass it to me, then Guardiola perfection it. And then we were lucky the last years to have Messi there. Messi has been a very humble guy as far as I'm concerned. That goes there, gets beat every game, but he, he gets up and he's, he's a winner. But uh, as I told you before, I, I think that Barca is, a, is, a, is an entity because Barcelona is not only the soccer team, Barcelona has a basketball team, has a hockey mm-hmm. team, has a volleyball team, a handball team. It's got a lot of different uh, sports teams associated under one, uh, under one uh, FC Barca. Yeah. So it, it, for us, it's more, as I say, than 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 a, just a team. It's a way of um, representing our culture, especially when 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 Franco was alive. He 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 swept so much for Madrid and. I mean, there was a player called um, Stefano, which, anyway, I could go on and on for about this now. But right. um, uh, as I say, I, I think Johan Cruyff was, for me, the guy that by far uh, changed the, the whole concept of soccer. You know, I'm glad you even brought the basketball team up. There was big news in the past week about the Barcelona Lassa, and that is that Milwaukee Bucks forward, who was part of that team with Giannis Antetokounmpo in the NBA, who were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference 
finals. They have a forward, Nikola Miritich. He, again, he was a longtime NBA player, has decided to really shock the NBA and return to the Euro League to play for Barcelona. So as far as the entire Euro basket, it's Barcelona who brought in the number one talent, and that is Nikola Miritich from the Milwaukee Bucks. So a big get for FC Barcelona's basketball team going into next year. And on the point of Johan Cruyff and you watching him come to the club, I think in today's day and age, uh, I just want to have you give some context now, I guess, to some of our younger fans, that when Cruyff came from Ajax, he was at the top of his powers. That was a gigantic transfer for Barcelona. It wasn't just about Real Madrid buying the most popular players. Barcelona got the guy in world football when he came over from Ajax. So where do you think you stand on transfer rumors that are, as you're watching them even this summer, between Antoine Griezmann and Neymar, and just Barcelona continue to go after these big names, do you think that this is different? Or how is this different than when Barcelona were getting a guy like Johan Cruyff? Well, it, I think it's different. I mean, when Johan Cruyff came, there was him and uh, Hugo Sotil. There was there were uh, Spain allowed only two international players, so the majority of them were either uh, they grew up playing in Barca. They were Spanish guys, so that's a big difference. Um, right now, you look at the the Barca team. And yes, it's an amazing team, but um, there's Gerard Piquet, Jordi Alba, there's a few guys that they come from the Cantera. But um, sometimes it, for me, I think it lost a little the charm that they that they push the local guys to play good and you were able to bring only one or two or three foreigners. Now there's a lot of foreigners. and uh, Yeah, it's great to have uh, maybe Neymar coming back, but I don't know if it's as great that he left and he's coming back for these fortunes of money. So uh, myself particularly, even if I still like Barca, I think it, when I, when you start looking at these numbers of, of, of amounts of money, of millions mm-hmm. of millions of, of, of euros, it doesn't make sense sometimes because I'm a very um, I'm a very guy that um, I'm a person that likes to support minorities a lot. And when you look at the amount of amounts of money you get spent in soccer versus the amount of money that one worker makes in Barcelona, it's completely distortion. So. I have my own particular thoughts about all that. Even yeah. if I like Barca to be the best team in the world, I don't like that these transfers, they go on with so many millions of dollars, honestly, because um, Spain went through a big recession, and they say, if you're an old person cannot pay for the apartment, they they kick you out. <laughs> I should be not, not having. But anyway, this is my my way of thinking. And, yeah. and, and talking about the Barca... Um, I'm glad. I'm glad Nico Nicola Miratic joined Barcelona. Um, I know I, I'm good friends with a lot of the basketball players. I was in a great wedding this weekend from one of the mega stars of uh, Barcelona, and I know a lot of few inside. But I'm I'm happy that Miratic is going to be there. I, I I hope FC Barca becomes an, uh, uh, the the European basketball champion again. Yeah, terrific. I mean, there have been some fantastic players known on the global market. Uh, obviously, Paul Gasol, Marc Gasol, both NBA champions, uh, got their start uh, at FC Barcelona. Then you have a, a bunch of former players, even currently at FC Barcelona, Washington Wizards, old forward Chris Singleton uh, and the like, um, Gonzaga, Kevin Pangos. So Barcelona is a destination, as you're saying, not just for the soccer team or the football team, but also for basketball for handball, uh, and particularly as you came on to talk about the cuisine. Uh, But as we know, again, the lifeblood of FC Barcelona is that football team. So my final question for you about 
you know, the football team. What are your expectations for this coming season? Hey, Champions League. If you don't win the Champions League, you can win as many uh, leagues in Spain that uh, I don't think they count anymore. I, I, I hope. I mean, the thing is, like, when, when, you, when you look at the budget of some of the teams, and this is my particular view, you cannot compare Barcelona and Real Madrid should, should sweep every, every week in every Spanish team by 7, 8, 9, 10, 0, because the budget of one of the players of Barca is more than the budget of the, the whole of the team. So I think the future should be making a European league that uh, has the best teams, the most powerful teams, the most financially uh, successful and strong teams. And I think in our days, you know, um, unfortunately, Real Madrid doesn't win a lot of leagues, but they win a lot of European championships. Unfortunately for us, Barca fans. And I think that um, the best title that in Europe that a team can win is the, it's the, it's the, it's the Champions, Champions League. So I, I'm a believer that they should be, and I think it's going to happen eventually, because Liverpool, Juventus, um, Paris Saint-Germain, Ajax and Barca, Madrid. I mean, uh, Manchester United, Manchester City. These guys, they, they, they're in another league. Bayern, Bayern the Munich. These, they should make a league for these guys. And in order to to become a member of this elite, you sh- you got to show a lot because, as I say, you know, it's it's impossible that um, any other team uh, rises to the surface because financially, I mean, we never heard as a kid. Very, about Paris Saint-Germain, for example. Mm-hmm. What happened lately? Some guy from an Arab country took over the team with a lot of money, and then Paris Saint-Germain become a team. They haven't won anything. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That yeah. it, it'd, be, it'd be great if... In America, sports has a salary cap. Basketball has a salary cap here. And that doesn't exist in, in Europe. Right. I think salary cap should be something they should impose. Because I don't think it's fair that, as I say, that one team... One team player, it's more valuable than a whole other team. That's yeah. my, my opinion, you know. But uh, finishing answering your question, it's I think Champions League for a team, it's got to be the, the most precious trophy. And that proves the fact that it's so hard to repeat. So few people, so few teams have, have won two years in a row the Champions League. While the Liga in Spain, Barca, has winning it for, for, for a long time right now. Um, not every year, but it goes sometimes two or three years in a row that they won. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of that disparity, too, comes from the TV contracts and the broadcasting rights. So much of that money in the Liga going to Real Madrid and Barcelona because they're the teams that people tune into. They're the teams on TV. And we also know that in so much of Spain, take, for example, if you're in Mallorca or if you're in, in a smaller city um, in, in Lyon, that you're going to be a fan of your local team, but then you're also a fan of Barcelona or Real Madrid. Uh, and that's always such a big distinction in Spain that so many people have two teams that they root for. And one of those other two teams, one of those teams other than their local team winds up being one of the big two. And then you also mentioned too, that if, if rumors are to be believed that with the money that comes in from the Champions League being such a disparity to other teams, and you even look at Arsenal and England or and you know, the Premier League is a big example here that if you miss out on Champions League football, you'll have a hard time in the transfer window competing with the four teams from the UK that did make it to the Champions League. And obviously, if one of those teams win the UCL or win the Europa League, that changes things too because they automatically qualify and things like that. But yeah, certainly, I think that there is such a disparity in, in Spain and, in, and I guess globally in 
not just the world, but in, in, in Europe in particular, that there is a disparity in talent. Uh, and we see that more and more as the transfer windows over the last two or three years have gone you know, completely bananas, for sure. Um, now, Chef, I, I want to ask you before I let you go, you've mentioned your restaurant, so I want to give you a quick plug on that again, your restaurant in Austin. And I also want to uh, give you a quick chance again to plug your book. Now, obviously, we're going to have all that stuff down in the show notes. So you can check that out. And, then, and finally, where can people also find you online to track everything down? Oh, well, uh, in Austin, Texas, most of the time. But if you go online, uh, you, you, follow, you follow the Instagram of Barlata, um, and then you can follow whatever we do. Um, I spend most of the time here. We, we travel to spend as much as we can, but Austin is where our home is. His book is Catalan Food, Culture, and Flavors from the Mediterranean. Chef Daniel Olivea, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you today, not just about Catalan cuisine, but about the FC Barcelona football team, and the basketball team. Thanks so much for joining the show, Chef. My pleasure. Muchas gracias. And thanks so much to you, the listeners, for tuning in again. You can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe to the show. And you can also find us on social media, too. We're on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod or at HiltonD13 for me, and on Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod. Our closed Facebook group is tbpod.link backslash group. For deeper dives, discussions, that's where we get our normal La Ronda questions. And you can help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. We're now also on YouTube at the Barcelona Podcast. And while we did talk about transfers today, including Johan Cruyff and Neymar, I've got a YouTube video coming out later this week about Barcelona's most expensive transfers ever. So keep a lookout on there. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel and you'll be notified when that comes out later this week. So smash that subscription button. So thanks so much for listening to this, the Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And Forza Barca. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.